0: Welcome to Outdoors Radio with Dan Small, your source for the latest hunting and fishing information. Brought to you by Lakelink, your online fishing resource at lake-link.com.
1: Outdoors Radio is also brought to you by the Wisconsin Hunter Education Program with the Wisconsin DNR at dnr.wi.gov. I'm Dan Small, Jeff Kelm joins me shortly, and if I sound a little hoarse today, well, I'm battling what I hope is no more than a cold, but we'll get through this. Today we'll talk with children's fly fishing book author Andy Weiner, outdoor diversity advocate Chris Kilgore, and North American trapper TV host Alan Probst. All that and more straight ahead on Outdoors Radio. Time now for Madison Outdoors. You hear this special feature every week at this time on WTSO, the Big 1070. And, of course, you can stream it on demand on Lake Link and on our podcast on uh, iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Joining us once again is my good friend, pro angler Duffy Cup. Well, Duffy, gosh, we're finally getting a little respite in this weather. But, man, it's it's like two weeks of below zero. It's crazy.
2: Yeah, it's, it's been, I've got more snow around the house than I can remember in, in quite a while. Uh, and, of course, the cold, once that snow is down, then the cold just kind of keeps it there. And uh, uh, the, this weekend, the Saturday that this is this is playing, I, I think things hopefully will start melting a little bit.
1: Do you think uh, uh, <clears throat> that there's slush under that snow on uh, on some of the lakes or on all of them?
2: I'm, I'm betting if there's, if there's enough snow on top of that slush, that's that could still be there because, uh, you know, you get six or eight inches on top and boy, that's a heck of a good insulator. I, I went one time and we, we, uh, we did overnight survival in snow caves that, that you made yourselves. So (laughs) the entire uh, daylight, just about you, all you were doing was piling up snow and dumping a little water on it and stuff like that. And. And, uh, by nightfall you had dug into the thing and then down about three feet and then back up again and, uh, sleep overnight and you had one candle in there and, you know, you had a decent, a good sleeping bag, but it was comfortable. That snow is a great insulator and once you get some heat inside those, those things, uh, it's kind of like being in an igloo and, uh, it was, I thought it would be kind of cold sleeping out there. It was actually very comfortable.
1: You know, I did that once. <clears throat> I had a class when I taught at Northland. We called it, uh, uh, what the heck did we call it? I don't know. But we went to uh, Ely, Minnesota in the winter, dog sledding and snowshoeing, and we built one of those snow shelters. They called it a Quincy, um, and we piled snow up, like you described, and then and just let it set up because uh, when snow drifts, you know, it packs. And oh, yeah. and then they stuck sticks, oh ten ten 10 to 12 inches long in from the outside so they knew where to stop tunneling so you didn't break through. And yeah. uh, <clears throat> five of us slept in the Quincy one night and five in a wall tent. Then we swapped the next night. I was in the wall tent the first night and I thought I was going to die. Even though, <laughs> even though it had a, a wood stove, when the stove went out, you know, there was no insulation. I woke up. Uh, feeling like I was having a heart attack, but I think I my my lungs were getting frosted or something. It was I was just breathing that cold air. In the Quincy, <clears throat> five bodies close together, the temperature was around thirty degrees.
2: Yeah. Yeah, you don't need a real heavy duty sleeping bag at that point.
1: No, and and when we were done, four of us with all our packs on after two nights Stood on top of that snow shelter and did not break through. Now, we didn't jump up and down, but we climbed up on it and it held our weight. And it was just, yeah. it was just the, um, you know, the evaporation from our, our breath and, uh, and freezing in the ice there. It was uh, in the snow. It was amazing. So.
2: And we had, okay. we had a big enough one where we actually, uh, carved out little, uh, bunk places on the side.
3: Oh, the no sides kidding. Were
2: thick enough where <clears throat> Yeah, yeah, it was pretty, pretty cool, uh, pretty cool thing. In fact, the guy that was uh, in charge of that those grounds out there, he said he's probably going to leave that one there and let the let the school group uh, that was coming out the next weekend to uh, use it again.
1: Now that you didn't do that this year.
2: No, oh, God, no! <laughs> Getting a little bit old for doing that
1: stuff. Yeah, yeah, but me too. But uh,
2: that was that was a teacher training thing. That was really, really good. That was fun.
1: Yeah. Well. For people who've never tried it, um, you know, if you Google or YouTube, um, do a search for winter snow shelters. Well, I can't have them in the summer, but snow shelters, uh, you'll probably find directions on how to do it. And, uh, you know, it's remarkable how insulating that snow is. A friend of mine up in Cable recently took a thermometer and read the air temperature, which was 14 below, and pushed the thermometer down through the snow to the ground level, and it was 27. And that's oh, a yeah.
2: That's I, a, I believe that very easily.
1: That's a huge difference. Well, so that snow may be insulating some of that slush, but what's it doing to the fish? What do you think?
2: Well, you know, I really haven't been out because I've been working hard on videos, and I, I just did a little promotional video on your class, too. Oh, wonderful. And I just put that out uh, the other day. Uh, but, uh, I, I would think it's probably pretty typical getting towards late winter, uh, situation where the panfish are a little bit more finicky and stuff, but I, you know, guys are catching them. So they're working hard at it. It's not like you just go and set up in one place and, uh, spend the whole day the guys that are successful are the guys that are able to move around.
1: Uh-huh. Well, Jeff Kelm always tells me, look, the fish are there. If you can find them, you can tease them into eating. You know, people who can't find them are the ones that aren't having any luck. But he fishes plastics and very small uh, plastics frequently, rarely uses any live bait, not, you know, no big chunk of uh, waxworm or a minnow or yeah. anything like that.
2: Yeah, and, of course, the big thing in this day and age is having, having uh, the Vexilar or whatever brand that you're, using out there and learning how to use that correctly and once you once you see that little line moving up towards uh, the line that is your bait in the water yeah uh, it gets to be an adult video game is what it is <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah yeah that's for sure yeah he um he uses both uh you know flasher locator and camera um I think he pops a bunch of holes and drops the camera down to see where they might be, and then works right, from
2: there. I use my I, I use AquaView even even during the the summer to actually get off of some of the uh, weed edges to get out uh, away from them and see where you have transitions. If you if you're going from mud to gravel or from uh, mud to uh, a rocky area and stuff like that, and, and using and fishing those transitions. Those uh, a lot of times can be paths for those fish to uh move in or out of the feeding area so you can set up right on top of those. That's that's kind of an easy way to do it. But that 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 aqua view, uh, I that's uh, I, I can't believe how good they make those things now and and how valuable that can be
1: once you learn how to use it. Yeah, that's what he uses as well. You know, a lot of people don't realize that fish use um travel corridors uh, like weed edges and uh, shelves and, and other structure the way deer use a path or we might use a sidewalk
2: oh certainly and, and they you know the little things like maybe a stump in the water or something like that that's their you know go down, go down two blocks and turn left at the stop sign <laughs> Well, that, that's their stop sign uh-huh. to do that and they'll actually use uh, the contours the underwater contours So if they're at uh thirty feet, you know, right right on the edge of the thermocline uh during the summer and they want to find their way towards their feeding area, they might come up to about twenty feet and use that contour right there until they they get to another road sign, what I would call a road sign, and then they know to go up shallower and right into the right into weed bed. So that structure uh thing and is uh, very valuable. Once you learn how to do that, you, you learn some of those migration routes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's why guys will be in the same place. Some of those guys are in the same place every morning when you get out on the lake. Yeah, That's that's usually what they're doing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, let's change gears here a little bit. You talked about videos. Uh, the Muskie School is coming up, isn't it?
2: It is, and... Uh, Probably a little faster than I would like right now, but I've got most of the videos done and I put together what I'm calling pop videos. I did two of them today. Uh, but, uh, uh let's see, what day did I put yours? Uh, on Sunday, what I did is I, I took and just made a small video yeah. featuring just your class. Okay. When it's going to be and everything and then the website for, for, uh, getting on for, for people to register. And uh I've made nine of those now. And I've gotta make nine of these little pop ones that I'm doing where I just take a little uh thirty second segment out of the video that we made of your presentation. Sure. And then put that on there too to let people know what it's gonna look like when they when they register for a class. So hopefully this all works out for us.
1: Well where are those running? <clears throat>
2: uh if nothing else, they could go to uh Capital City Muskie School. Facebook page, and they can see them there, or they can go to uh, my personal Facebook page. All of them are on there. Uh, and I, w- I would say those two would be the ones that it would be easiest to find them.
1: Okay, and your um, your personal page is, is Duffy Cup, right?
2: Right. Last <clears throat> last name spelled K-O-P-F.
1: Right, right. Okay, well, very good. Well, Duffy, um, we will send people there, and we will talk more about these uh, classes uh, next time we visit, because we've run out of time once again. Okay. Well, thank you so much, and uh, stay warm. I think I think it's going to be a little warmer this weekend. Okay, Dan. We'll see you. All righty, Duffy Cup with the Madison Outdoors Report, heard each week on WTSO the Big 1070, and on our podcast as well. I'm Dan Small more outdoors radio right after this joining me once again from wisconsin rapids is my on-air partner jeff kilm well jeff this cold weather has pretty much put an end to the ice fishing except for the super hardcore folks folks
0: yeah and i even think they are suffering through it uh it's it's not a lot of fun when it's you know that bitter cold but uh the warm-up here you know it'll be time to get out and and see what happens and uh, see if those fish that you uh left when uh before the cold snap happened if they're still there
1: yeah and what should you be looking for this time of year i mean we're getting to late ice aren't we or, yeah no, this getting... is this is like midwinter still
0: actually. yeah it's it's midwinter stuff i mean you've got a lot of uh you've had a lot of snow cover and a lot of things so uh you're, you're looking for oxygen almost number one um if you've got weeds that are still green um or, or standing even they they probably will have a little oxygen in them yet, and, uh, and fish can still be around, but a lot of basin fish right now, a lot of edges off of basins, uh, next to structure, stuff like that, uh, cribs and things like that, you're gonna find a lot more fish at, because uh, they tend to be in 13 feet of water or more, um, and, uh, and so looking for those types of things, you're probably not gonna find a ton of stuff in, six feet of water right now unless you just have beautiful green weeds off of you know some fresh flowage or something
1: Mm -hmm. you know you're echoing uh, a lot of what duffy said in the madison report this week Uh, fish edges uh, he and i talked about fish using travel corridors what we might see on land as uh, deer trails or sidewalks Mm -hmm. for people
0: Mm mm-hmm Yep, absolutely. Uh, You can see that either through maybe two different types of weeds. You know, you'll have one weed that's really suffocating and another weed that gives them a bit of a canopy to move through, uh, which uh, makes it difficult to see, you know, with your flasher. uh, What you see is just you know, a, a solid line of weeds, there might actually be more of a canopy that those fish are moving through. And you've just got to fish it anyways, uh, at times. Mm-hmm. But, uh but yeah, certainly through any kind of structure, uh, sometimes it's just a matter of the way the contour of the basin of the lake is. Uh, I've seen it where there's weed and weed, and then just a sand basin where it just drops by Eight inches to a foot, and they move through there like it's a like it's a highway huh. and um and you've just got to be on the spot because they don't want to move over into the weed area. you've got to be right there,
1: yeah, yeah, interesting well, and I suppose you find those spots more easily with an Aquaview view or a similar camera.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I do a lot of camera work. I would like to put eyes on everything, uh, even even with using a flasher or or live scope setup. Uh, putting eyes on something and really getting a good look at what you're uh, actually fishing and seeing is is a great way to learn.
1: You know, years ago when all we had were black and white cameras and uh, you know bulky boxes and stuff, uh, we taped a show <clears throat> with me doing an intro, holding the camera in my hand and uh, and then dropping it down through the ice. I was with Chuck Demlow on a little pond near West Bend, and we dropped the camera down and uh, took a look at the fish, and then we shot a lot of the stuff. That was with the old pre-HD cameras. You can't do that now, or at least you couldn't with HD. I suppose you can now with the uh, quality of the, the modern cameras, but it was a lot of fun. We had the black and white uh, shots of the fish, and then, of course, uh, we had some above-ice stuff of us, too
0: yeah it 's so much fun to be able to learn that way, and I think people don 't uh, don 't use them as much as they could use them, even if they have a camera. A lot of people like to use them just to fish. Um, I use mine primarily for scouting and and I learn patterns in a hurry with yep. those cameras
1: yeah and speaking of ice fishing, I still have one jiffy e six I know there 's a guy up your way who 's interested. Uh, But I'm not about to drive up there. If I have an opportunity to come up or you come down, we can maybe connect. But uh, if someone else gets to us first, um, it's yours.
0: It's a great drill, a great opportunity to pick up something at a really good deal.
1: Yep. Check us out on Facebook. Just send me a private message if you're interested. Well, there's lots of DNR news. I mean, one of the disadvantages of recording... Midweek is uh, sometimes decisions are made late in the week or on the weekend. We've got a wolf season now.
0: Yeah, that's what uh, that's what it sounds like, and uh, permits flying out the door. Uh, uh, Four thousand uh, permits allowed, with uh, two hundred tags, I believe, available. Mm. So, so it's going to be there going to be a lot of guys out there looking, and uh, only a few being able to fill.
1: Yeah, and I suppose they'll cut it off once they kill two hundred.
0: Yeah, I had to explain to somebody, it's much like sturgeon spearing. You've got a lot of uh, opportunity out there, but uh, it, it's it's very heavily regulated. They'll cut yeah. the season off when they reach their quota.
1: <clears throat> Absolutely. And it, depending on when you hear this, you may still have time to apply, and the season runs from the 22nd through the 28th, so it's uh, just a little over a week long. It's not a long season, but if that interests you, go for it. And the other DNR news was the sturgeon egg scandal over on Lake Winnebago. I mean, they announced those busts the day before the sparing season. Tell me that wasn't timed.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's really unfortunate all the way around. It's unfortunate the timing of things. It's unfortunate just the the way the situation has played out. We don't know every detail yet and how it's all going to shake out with uh, with everything. But, uh, you know people already have a lot of distrust in government as as it stands and mm-hmm. uh, to have something like that especially what's something that's so tried and true to Wisconsin that you want to believe everybody involved is just good people right yeah. and uh, and so it's just kind of a bummer to hear that kind of stuff and again we'll see what what all shakes out in
1: court yeah absolutely and i you know i know a lot of people in the Fond du Lac <clears throat> Oshkosh area and they say you know we've known that there's been a lot of trading back and forth of eggs forever it's just you know been a common practice there but uh, it is illegal so um you know you either got to change the law or you got to obey it I guess well um, one other news item the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel Sports Show which was moved to mid-April has been canceled for uh, this year so this will be the first year uh, it might possibly not have run during World, World War II, but uh, other than that, it's been on every year, and it is shut down this year because the state is still using State Fair Park Expo Center as a hospital overflow area, unfortunately, and no show. But the um, the uh, Sportsman Expo is still on uh, at the end of March, and we'll hear from uh, Alan Probst, who's host of North American Trapper. He's coming up first uh on the show here talking about his seminar and his efforts to um, promote the the sport of trapping and uh, the image uh, of trappers in the eye of the public. We'll also talk with Chris Kilgore about his efforts to open the outdoors to a more diverse participation. And Andy Weiner tells us about his fly fishing book for kids. It's called Down by the River. I'm Dan Small. More
4: Outdoors Radio right after this. Attention future hunters. Hunting season for turkey, small game, and deer is right around the corner. Don't wait to think about hunter education. The time to enroll is now. The Wisconsin DNR offers several options to choose from, making it easier than ever to enroll. Just browse for upcoming youth or adult hunter education classes at gowild.wi.gov and join the ranks of today's hunter education graduates who are ensuring the safe future of our hunting heritage. Classes fill up quickly, so don't wait. Enroll today. A message from Wisconsin DNR.
3: For the non- RGS.
1: Enjoy the ultimate shooting experience at the Range of Richfield, your one-stop shop for all shooters. Just north of the Richfield Cabela's store on Helson Drive, the Range of Richfield offers 12 state-of-the-art 25-yard indoor shooting lanes for all pistol and common rifle loads. Classes in home defense, basic handgun and concealed carry, a retail shop, trophy mount display, and more in a welcoming, family-friendly setting. Open daily except Monday to the public and members. Your ultimate shooting experience experience the rangewi.com. welcome back to your source for
0: the latest hunting and fishing information outdoors radio with dan small
1: welcome back to outdoors radio i'm dan small the outdoor expo formerly called the deer and turkey expo and then the outdoor life field and stream expo has a new name and location for this year it's now the Open Season Sportsman's Expo, and it's usually held at the Alliance Energy Center in Madison, but this year it'll be held March 26th through the 28th at Kalahari Resort in Wisconsin Dells. You can learn more at OpenSeasonSportsmansexpo.com. And joining us now is Alan Probst. He is host of the Wild Sportsman TV show, on the Sportsman Channel, as well as on other platforms. So, Alan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, appreciate you having me. Well, 10 seasons in the minor leagues and semi-pro together, uh, 57 career home runs, 297 RBI. That's not a bad total.
5: (laughs) I guess you did some digging into the baseball career.
1: Just a (laughs) little bit, yeah. How'd you get into that?
5: Oh, I mean, from the age of seven, I wanted to... Played professional baseball and, you know, you know, I was fortunate enough to, uh, get the opportunity went to college, played well, uh, ended up, you know, having a couple good years, uh, was the first team All-American my junior year and ended up getting
1: drafted. So, oh,
5: yeah. you know, got me the
1: opportunity. Yep. A lot of us wanted to be there. I have a first cousin who, uh, Was a a great pitcher in high school and college, but they said he just didn't have the speed when he tried out. He played Uh Triple A for years. In fact, he was on three different teams uh, at the same time, playing, you know, pitching one night and then fielder the next night. And Uh anyway, you know, you know how that goes. So.
5: Yeah, absolutely. It was my life for about 25 years.
1: Wow, wow. And then uh, you're also an outdoorsman. How did you get into that?
5: Uh, about the same time, uh, my father and grandfather and uncles and, you know, cousins and everybody in the town. I grew up in a small town, northeastern, north central Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, there really wasn't much to do. So, you know, hunting, fishing and traveling was, was what we did. And, you know, I cut my first muskrat at the age of seven. And hmm. from then I just had the, had the zest for, uh, the outdoor lifestyle as well. Yeah.
1: Okay. Of all the outdoor activities, do you have a a favorite? Well, yeah, um, I do. The you did mention the Wild Sportsman Show,
5: uh, but I do the the main show that I do is the North American Trapper. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, the the where we try and teach people the the viable ecological and environmental aspects of uh, trapping to alleviate a lot of the pressure off of ground nesting birds alleviate pressure off of the white tailed deer, um, alleviate pressure off of rabbits, grouse, all those different things just to, you know, not that we want to go out and decimate the coyotes or the raccoons or things of that nature. But, you know, with the way human expansion has gone across the country, uh, we're trying to show methods and techniques that are not only, uh, ecologically and environmentally sound, but help the overall aspect of, of the whole ecosystem.
1: Yep. I, I couldn't agree with you more. We've got a small farm and I've uh, been forced to trap raccoons just uh-huh. to keep my chickens alive because they're, they're uh-huh. so, they're so destructive. And last year I got 15 of them and uh, ended up eating most of them. I, it took me a while to figure out a good recipe, but, um, They're certainly edible if people want to do that.
5: Oh, absolutely. There's a, there's a whole market for them. I mean, they're, they're, uh, they're a sustainable, uh, edible source of protein as well as, you know, when they're prime in the fall, you know, the, the fur can be used. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's all around, uh, a sound ecological practice, as I've said.
1: Yep, and I have a nephew who's making a vest for himself and me, and and a friend of mine who trapped a bunch of coons this uh, past fall. Uh, the market is is not real good right now for fur. How how, how do you sell trapping in this day's market?
5: Well, we're we're yeah, <laughs> the fur market is definitely dismal. Uh, what we're doing is we're just educating. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, edu- we're educating farmers, ranchers, homeowners alike, um, to the overpopulation of these animals, and showing how you can help. You know, not only the homeowner with problems that they're having with destruction, whether it's their housing, you know, holes and things of that nature, or the farmers, the ranchers, where
6: they're getting their crops taken. Just like you just said, chickens. Mm-hmm
5: uh geese ducks all these different things that that are around ranches and farms and things of that nature are getting terrorized by the overpopulation of the predators and you know we're just teaching how you can kind of be the own steward of your own land and there's there's a lot of uh things that you know, the mainstream media has told people over the years, whether it's through PETA or the Humane Society or they're just not getting factual information that's, you know, helping not it's not helping anything, oh. a lot of the information that's out there. Yeah. And we're trying to educate and teach the the viable methods of trapping which are not harmful to the critters. I mean, we use traps and things in this day and age that are actually quite easy on the
4: animal. Yeah. It's
5: a holding device. It's not a, a maiming device, as, as they would tell you. It, it holds the animal mm-hmm. till you're able to come there, dispatch it, or move it to another location.
1: Mm-hmm. What kind of response are you getting from your efforts?
5: Well, there's there's a lot of good response. Again, we're always going to get the bad response when you put yourself out there sure. with this type of a hot-button subject. yeah. Uh, some people just can't get outside of their own emotions and don't get me wrong. Uh, I let, I let a lot of animals go because I'm only out there. If I'm out there trapping raccoons and, and coyotes and things of that nature and, and we catch a gray fox or a bobcat or something that, that we don't want to take out of the equation, we let it go and we watch it run away. Mm-hmm. So, and, and they're, they're, they run away and they're fine. You know, you can selectively harvest what you're after, uh, but the response has been good, because we're using sound uh, numbers, we're using sound data, we're using facts, we're able to prove these facts, and overall, uh, people are starting to recognize that you know, this can help the turkey population, sure. this can help the rabbits, this can help the farmer that's having problems with the chickens. So it comes down to education, just like it does with anything else in this world. Uh, ignorance on any subject uh, doesn't allow you to make an educated decision on anything. So we're trying to educate uh, the masses on the viability of this as a wildlife management tool.
1: Yeah, and I imagine you're going to cover that topic in your seminar.
5: Yeah, in the seminars, we go over uh, the nest predators. Um, we go over how to catch the, the coyotes, which harass the deer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just basically touch on very simple methods, simple techniques. Uh, my goal is when I do a seminar or I do a, a presentation, my goal is to, if I have people in that seminar that have never trapped or never done this, that when they leave, they will have enough confidence to try it and be successful. Uh-huh. That's, that's what I try and do. I don't get too, uh, deep into the nuances per se of, of what we do. I'm, I'm giving the nuts and bolts to where this is the equipment you need. This is how you do it. And you will be successful and as I said earlier, uh, allow yourself to be the steward of your own property.
1: Mm-hmm. Very good. Well, your show we gotta let you go here pretty quick, but your show or your two shows, they're both on Sportsman's Channel, correct? Well, no,
5: the 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 North American Trapper runs on the Sportsman's Channel and uh the Wild Sportsman runs uh Specifically in Pennsylvania, and ah, okay. New York, on regional outlets.
1: Okay, that's my fault for. I'm sorry. I didn't dig deep enough, I guess. So, all righty. Well, listen, I I uh, plan to be there. I'm an exhibitor there myself, and uh, I'm glad I'm, I'm glad they have a trapping seminar. I've done it uh, off and on most of my life. I started not as young as you, but muskrats is kind of the entry level drug to uh, yep. trapping for most people, and. Um, it, I, I know the value of it, and I think most true sportsmen do, and I just hope uh, people uh, get your message and, and are, are able to learn from it. Well,
5: I definitely appreciate the opportunity, and, and if anybody has any questions, they can reach out to me at my website, northamericantrapper.com, or come up to me at the event, and I'll be more than happy to
1: uh, help them and lead them in the right direction. Perfect. Well, Alan, thank you so much, and uh, we'll hope to see you at the, at the expo. Appreciate it. You bet. Alan Probst is host of Wild Sportsman and North American Trapper, and you can find uh, him on on his website, northamericantrapper.com. That's the show that's on the Sportsman's channel. And he will be speaking at the uh, new Expo, Open Season Sportsman's Expo, March 26th through the 28th at the Kalahari Resort in Wisconsin Dells. I'm Dan Small. More Outdoors Radio right after this. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio. I'm Dan Small. If you're ever in a car or motorcycle accident and need help, call Hupy and Abraham, named Best Personal Injury Law Firm, by the Wisconsin Law Journal, year after year. The firm of Hupy and Abraham has collected more than a billion dollars for its clients. Call the firm voted best and rated best. Hupy and Abraham, 800-800-5678, or visit hupy.com. And by the way, all 11 offices of Hupy and Abraham are open for business if you need their help. Well, joining us now from Albany, California, is Andy Weiner. He has been in the publishing business for about 40 years, and he recently published his first book. It's a book on fly fishing aimed at a young audience, and it's called Down by the River. Andy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Great to be here. Well, 40 years in the business, and now you decide to write a book.
7: <laughs> I actually wrote it long before it was published, uh-huh. or at least the first versions of it. Okay. Um, and it, it took about 15 years to actually get the book
2: published. It's a,
1: it's a long process. Uh, yeah. I, I have, as I mentioned to you off air, I've got a kid's book in the works too, and I don't think I've got 15 years to wait. <laughs> yeah. So, why did you write this book?
7: Um, as somebody who's worked in publishing and has loved books for my entire life. Um, I always had the feeling that I could be somebody who could write something that certainly kids could appreciate and families could appreciate,
2: mm-hmm. and
7: fly fishing, which is my passion, um, seemed like a great subject to write about, um, and it, it, the fact that it's panned out the way it has, it's pretty gratifying.
1: How's the book doing?
7: The book has actually done really well. Um, it came out in March of 2008. Eighteen, So it's been out for a couple of years. Um, And I've worked really hard to uh, connect with the the bookstores, many of whom I know, but lots of others around the country that I haven't worked with. And with people in the outdoor world, um, both in fly fishing um, and general outdoors and environmental educators and nonprofits, and the book has gotten a really wonderful reception and has been a success. I think we're about to order our third printing. Oh, good. is fantastic.
1: Good, good. Well, what audience did you have in mind? Obviously kids, I'm guessing families too, because it's about a family trip.
2: Absolutely.
7: Um, I think it's a story that um, will resonate for anyone who has shared outdoor activities and fly fishing in particular as family. Um, And I think that the, the idea that fly fishing is something that can be shared across generations in a family is one of the appeals of the story. And, you know, you've mentioned, and it's so wonderful to hear that the, the story moves you. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a, an experience that a lot of people have when they read it. It reminds them of things that they've done with their parents or their grandparents. And um, it's just, it, it's a warm memory.
6: Yeah. And yeah.
7: it teaches kids that family activities and outdoor activities are the best, the yeah. best things to participate
1: in yeah. and, and many of us not not all but I'd say most outdoors enthusiasts got started with a family member uh, with a, a dad or an older brother a cousin or grandpa um, so I, I'm sure it will as you say resonate with all uh, with, with that audience um, and for folks who are wondering what this is about it's a touching story of a young boy who's going fly fishing for trout with his mom and his grandfather and this is a a river that uh, the grandfather and the mother fished years ago, and presumably since then, and they're taking uh, Art, the the young boy, uh, I guess, for the first time to this river. But uh, very, very uh, simple story, but very touching, and so nicely illustrated by April Chu. Uh, you know, by like so many kids' books, the illustrations. Uh, I'm not taking anything away from your words, because it's the text that (laughs) that I find moving, but the illustrations really make it work.
7: Well, I I was very fortunate that April agreed to illustrate the book, and honestly, what I always say to people is, even if the story were terrible, April's illustrations would make it worthwhile. I'm (laughs) glad that people appreciate the words, too, but I don't think it would be half the book that it is if she hadn't been the illustrator. I'm really grateful.
1: Yeah, and besides the story, which is told in, oh gosh, I don't know, a dozen or 16 or, I didn't count the pages, not too many pages, um, there are some very nice illustrations inside both covers, illustrations of a variety of trout flies. And I've been a fly fisherman all my life. I'm not a... Uh, I'm not a hardcore purist, but there are some flies I never heard of there, <laughs> and some some old standbys too, of course.
7: The, the story of that is that my editor and the art director for the book um, had come up with the idea that we could have those illustrations of flies in the the end papers. and I, I'm fortunate to have a fly shop ten minutes by foot from my house, and I went, I bought a couple of dozen flies for her, which I considered sort of essential flies. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of things that everybody's going to have in their fly box and I gave those to April and she started drawing them and she posted a video of herself on Instagram holding up a fly saying flies are so amazing <laughs> and she just got captivated sure. and she went to another fly shop and she ended up illustrating nearly 80 unique flies for the papers. Yeah. and I know that for kids and for their parents um, it's one of the most fun things about the book that they can go through those and um, and sometimes even tie the flies
1: together, Um, so it's really fun for kids. Sure, and uh, in the back of the book, there's also some very basic but useful information on fly fishing, uh, how it works, um, thoughts on conservation, catch and release, and then the equipment, the basic equipment, which can be mystifying to someone who's never done it.
7: the importance of accuracy in a a book about fly fishing. And the equipment was extremely important to get right. Um, One of the illustrations within the story, um, April had um, a picture of the mother with her her net attached to the back of her vest. And I said, you know, turn that net the other way because it's going to hook with the hook at
2: the the
7: base of the the net. But otherwise, she got it just right. I, I gave her lots and lots of photographs from... All the fly fishing magazines I subscribe to. So mm-hmm. she, she had a lot, a lot to work from. Yeah. Um, she did
1: a great job. Um, one thing that surprised me, um, there's a dog in the uh-huh. story. Uh, he's not mentioned. He's just there.
7: Yep. Um, but the dog was a really important part of the story for me, to have that dog there. Um, it's actually based on a dog that my ex-wife and I had named Sadie, who uh-huh. was a Vizhla. These ones are great outdoor dogs. Yep. Um, and every time I look at that book and I see that dog, it just makes me happy to, to see
1: her there. Huh. Yeah. Um, yeah, they are great dogs. My, my cousin had several of them over the years. They're very intelligent dogs as well. Extremely. Yeah. So, how can we get a copy of this book?
7: Um, you know, the, the easy answer is that it's available on Amazon. Um, but as a bookseller myself, um, and a fly fisherman, um, I would love for stores to support their local independent bookstores or their local independent fly shops. Um, and any of those can, um, order the book for you if they don't have it. It's easy to, to get it from a, a distributor. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you know the name of the book, um, you can ask for it by name, um, and, I'll give you the address of my website, and it has links to uh, different websites that sure. can direct consumers to um, independent bookstores and to flash shops as well.
1: Okay, what's that? Um, there's one called Bookshop.org,
7: um, and it's a sort of a an international um, book website and you put in your area code or your zip code rather Mm -hmm. and it will direct you to your local bookstore and it will give you the opportunity to order the book online um, and uh, it's a a nice easy way to get it and actually I don't think there is one for fly shops now that I think of it Mm -hmm. but if you have a local fly shop and tell them that you're looking to get the book there's a book distributor called Angler's Book Supply Mm -hmm. um, which is the, the main distributor of books for fly shops and they do carry the book,
1: and it's easy for shops to get it. Yeah, okay. Uh, we have a very fine fly shop here in uh, Viroqua in Vernon County, which is, I don't, I don't know what your trout fishing is like where you live, but I live in the heart of the best trout fishing in Wisconsin. Uh, we've got hundreds of streams within 30 miles of where I sit. I well, to come visit you. <laughs> yeah, do. <laughs> you should, yeah. There's a great, uh, great fly shop called Driftless Angler. I'm going to see if they've got it. Um, yeah. uh, do, have you uh, connected with uh, the fly fishing chains? I'm thinking of Orvis. I don't know if there are others.
7: You know, I've been in touch with many people at Orvis, including their, their book buyer. Orvis is facing the same challenge that um, a lot of independent retailers are, um, which is that Amazon – yeah. Has captured so much of the, the business of, of various types and um, I was talking to Tom Rosenbauer The, yep. the legendary um, Fly tire and author Who is connected with with Orbis And even he is having challenges Getting his books into Orbis these days wow. um, They've sort of given up a lot of that business Unfortunately wow. But on LinkedIn where, where we you and I connected I'm probably connected with about 75 people from Orbis So mm-hmm. at least their employees know about
1: it Yeah well good all right well we've got to let you go but uh, thank you so much for talking with us and uh good sure. luck with the book I, I love it i'm going to find i've got a number of friends with young kids and i'm going to either hand it to one and say pass it on or uh, find the right one who, who can keep it and uh and love it to death so uh, thank you, actually it, i'll give you the website for the book okay
7: um, for your, for your listeners it's uh, www.downbytheriverbook.com
1: mm-hmm. Down by the river book. Okay, very good. Um, Well, Andy, thanks again, and uh, I'm glad we connected, and uh, this was fun. Thank you, I appreciate it, Dan. You bet. Down by the river is the title of the book, and if you go to downbytheriverbook.com, you can see it there. You can order it there, and Andy Weiner uh, is—he's the author. If you're ever in a car or motorcycle accident and need help, call Hupy and Abraham, named best personal injury law firm by the Wisconsin Law Journal year after year. The firm of Hupy and Abraham has collected more than a billion dollars for its clients. Call the firm voted best and rated best. Hupy and Abraham, 800-800-5678 or visit huppie.com. And By the way, all 11 offices of Hupie and Abraham in Wisconsin, Illinois, and Iowa are open for business if you need their help. I'm Dan Small. More Outdoors Radio right after this. Enjoy the ultimate shooting experience at the Range of Richfield, your one-stop shop for all shooters.
4: attention future hunters. Hunting season for turkey, small game, and deer is right around the corner. Don't wait to think about hunter education. The time to enroll is now. The Wisconsin DNR offers several options to choose from, making it easier than ever to enroll. Just browse for upcoming youth or adult hunter education classes at gowild.wi.gov and join the ranks of today's hunter education graduates who are ensuring the safe future of our hunting heritage. Classes fill up quickly, so don't wait. Enroll today. A message from Wisconsin DNR.
3: For the nonprofit
0: Welcome back to your source for the latest hunting and fishing information. Outdoors Radio with Dan
1: Small. Welcome back to Outdoors Radio. I'm Dan Small. We're brought to you by the Wisconsin DNR Hunter Education and R3 programs, dnr.wi.gov, and also available on gowild.wi.gov. And joining us now is Chris Kilgore. He's the program manager for the Tribal Technology Institute at UW-Madison. And about a decade ago, he launched a nonprofit organization called Color in the Outdoors. And if you're wondering what's the connection between that and Hunter Ed and R3, well, we're going to find out. Chris, thanks for joining us.
6: Well, thanks very much for having me, Dan. I appreciate
1: it. Yeah, well, tell us a little bit about your background.
6: Well, I'm a lifelong Wisconsinite, um, essentially born and raised in the Madison area. I had two parents who were very um, avid outdoors people and uh, kind of the conservationist end of things. And so my uh, sister and I spent the vast majority of our childhood and into adulthood uh, knocking around in the woods and hiking and traveling and, and just exploring and enjoying all the different ways we could uh, in the outdoor world. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, um went to school in madison you know grew up in madison so i was blessed to have the lakes on i actually grew up right on the isthmus so we had you know lake mendota to one direction and lake menona on the other i grew up right on the Tenney park uh area so i was out fishing and and playing in the mud catching turtles and doing that kind of stuff all my childhood okay and uh as, as time progressed um you know, kept doing different things, working with the outdoors. I worked in the law enforcement community for a while, but we did an outdoor adventure program from, so for some of our, our kids in the neighborhood that we worked. And uh, um, eventually when I went on to what I would say adulthood in quotation because I don't really w- ever want to grow up um, – <laughs>
1: As a native Madisonian, um, what's your interest or what's your connection to people of color?
6: Well, I'm a a multiracial adoptee, so I grew up in a multiracial family, African-American, Native American, uh, Caucasian backgrounds. And uh, um, so I grew up in a a family, but parents were both Caucasian, and and, uh, it was an interesting dynamic, you know, being able to kind of uh, function in various circles and uh, see kind of how... Those various circles interacted not only with one another, but but specific to the outdoor world, um, you know, accessibility to the outdoors, um, sometimes you know, stigmas and stereotypes about outdoors that kept people from being outside, and and how people viewed the outside world and and their experiences therein, and and I guess I was always fascinated with uh, with that, and and making sure that you know uh, anything that would be. Looked at as prohibitive, or, or keep people from thinking that they they should or could be outside. Um, even as even from a young age, did what I could to try to kind of break down those barriers and try to open dialogue between people to to really show how amazing and and uh, you know outstanding the outside world was, and and how we could work better to not only be stewards of the land but do it collaboratively. So mm-hmm. you know, everybody kind of plays a role in the outdoors, and, and that it's not necessarily one person or one group or another that should be in charge or in
1: control of it Mm -hmm. um and so that naturally um developed uh, or or from that background you you decided to develop this program color in the outdoors
4: yeah
6: and and really the premise behind it is you know there's there's a lot of different organizations out there and, and especially in this day and age there are more and more groups kind of um, you know, being developed for uh, all kinds of different groups. I mean, there's, there you know, historically speaking, there's been um, uh, a kind of underrepresentation of, of various groups African American, Latino, Latinx, um, you know, and, and uh, Asian Americans and that sort of thing. And, and I think that, uh, you know, and, and you know, the, one of the unfortunate truths is that oftentimes people think of the outdoor world as being kind of a, uh, you know, white sport, if you will. And, and, it, from again a very young age, I was like, "Well, that's not true." You yeah, know, I mean, yeah. there's there's a lot of folks outside, a lot of folks doing a lot of different things, mm-hmm. and uh, um, so I, I think that that was really what what sparked it was. To, it, and the reason I, I intentionally named it what I did was that you know, there's a whole bunch of different colors in the outdoors, both literally in the outdoor world, but also specific to the people that share the outdoor experience. Sure, sure. and so it was yeah. it was really a, an attempt to, to to try to showcase the people and the experience um that made up the color
1: in the outdoors. Mhm. and of course you have a Facebook page now and uh you told me that your website is uh, undergoing uh, reconstruction, but your Facebook page is simply color in the outdoors. I checked it out and I see several yep. uh, black outdoors uh, uh tech uh, well uh, retailers and uh and some hunters and uh I know a number of other people. they may be on your list. i didn't scroll down all the way, but I can certainly put you in touch with some of the people i know um there There yeah, is a fair there's a fair community of uh, uh black people in in particular, but I also know a number of Hmong people here in Wisconsin who are very avid hunters, and of course they came to this country having been hunters and anglers in their in their homeland and and they just took to uh, the natural resources here uh, as well Um, one of the in fact the fastest growing segment of the hunting and shooting sports community uh, specifically is women but um, how are people of color uh, faring in that regard is the uh, representation growing or or can't we tell
6: well, you know, I would say from my own personal experience, research and, and you know, kind of interaction with other folks, at, to your point, in the industry and also kind of who have been researching this and writing about it for some time now, um, you know, the numbers are are most definitely increasing as the demographic and population shifts, as does, you know, as do the groups that are outside doing these things. Um, I think that, you know, again, to the point of kind of this last year in particular with, with some of the unfortunate news events and things that have been happening around the country, I think that there's a lot, you know, many more organizations that are kind of taking that to, to light and to heart and making sure that there is a continued and increased conversation about inclusivity and diversity and equity and inclusion when it comes to the outdoors. But, but to your point, I mean, there's a lot of groups, you know, with the um, in, involving women now and, and kind of, uh, one close friend in particular, Barb Carey, who, who you know has her own fishing show and does a bunch of this.
1: taking a a broader view now with the u.s population heading toward a shift in uh, color balance if you'd even use that term uh estimated to be 50 percent non-white by 2050 um is there a a broader reason other than uh helping um people of color get into the outdoors is there a broader reason to recruit non-white outdoors enthusiasts now
6: you know, I mean, I think the reality, at some levels, to your point, is, is there's an economic drive, right? I mean, if your population is increasing, if the brown population is increasing um, rapidly, those are your those are your customers, and those are the people that are you know are are continuing to keep the economy running. So, so that's one consideration. Um, I think the other thing, you know, to the point of you know all of our programs in the past of trying to get youth involved for those stewards of the you know those next stewards in line of taking care of the outdoor world. Um, I think that that's another uh, thing is that, you know, we've got a lot of young people. And, of course, to that point, a lot of young people of color who are coming up in the ranks, if you will. And, and these are the folks that that are going to be the next generation of taking care of the outdoors for us mm-hmm. and making sure that it maintained it for the next generations to come.
2: So, mm-hmm.
6: um, yeah, I definitely think that there is a... An economic uh, motivation behind that as well, um, and I think that there are a lot of, you know, a lot of the clothing retailers and gear retailers are starting to reflect that in their in their advertising, their prints, if you will, with yep. you know the, the different the different faces that are starting to show up, um, and you know, I mean, and, and that's that's kind of one of the common taglines, if you will, with those of us that talk about diversity equity and inclusion is, you know, if you don't have folks that look like you. Represented representing you, um, oftentimes you don't necessarily see yourself in those in their shoes. Sure. And so, um, the more that that folks see hunters and anglers, hikers, campers, canoers, you know, all of those things that look like them, uh, they're more apt to say, "Oh, well, this is something. You know, not only is this something I'm interested in, but this is a, a tangible thing. This is something that
1: I can do." Mm-hmm. Now, if people go to your Facebook page, um, can they? Uh, learn about programs or ask you about uh, getting involved in some of your activities.
6: Most definitely, yeah. Mm-hmm. On our Facebook page, there's actually a contact information, both our our current email address and phone number, and uh, we're on Instagram at Color in the Outdoors um, and also um, Twitter. So mm-hmm. uh, all the social media outlets except right now <laughs> the the
1: website which is yeah. kind of yeah. built and put together. Yep. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, we're going to let you go, but this has been really interesting, and uh, I wish you the best of luck with this program. I'm sure it will continue to uh, gather support, and uh, I think the timing couldn't be better, actually.
6: Well, I really appreciate all the time, and, and again, I listen to your show a lot, so I, I, it's
1: an honor to be on it. So well, thanks very much. It's our pleasure to have you. Thanks so much, Chris. <laughs> Chris Kilgore is the program manager for the Tribal Technology Institute at UW-Madison, and his program is called Color in the Outdoors. You can find it on Instagram and on Facebook. And this was brought to you by the Wisconsin Department of, Hunter Education, Department of Natural Resources, Hunter Education, and R3 programs at dnr.wi.gov. I'm Dan Small. More Outdoors Radio right after this.
0: Welcome back to Outdoors Radio with Dan Small. Outdoors Radio is brought to you by Wisconsin Hunter Education Program with the Wisconsin DNR, dnr dnr.wi.gov, and by Cedar Lake Sales on Highway 33 West in West Bend, on the web at cedarlakesales.com. And Cedar Lake Sales is open for business. You can check their website or Facebook page for updates and details.
1: And they have boats in stock and more coming in every week. So if you're looking for a new boat this uh, spring, don't wait too long to order. And if you missed an episode of Outdoor Wisconsin or if you missed Deer Hunt Wisconsin and still want to see that show, you can watch any of those shows on the pbswisconsin.org website or milwaukee pbs.org and you can watch the deer show on the deer hunt wisconsin youtube channel
0: we've got this radio show and uh, up to about a year's worth of radio shows online at lake-link.com go to their outdoor media page or outdoor radio page rather and uh, you can click on our show and then um you can download it, take it with you anywhere you go. You can follow Dan and I throughout the week as well. Follow Dan online at uh, Dan Small Outdoors. Follow me at Hardwater Jeff.
1: Don't forget the Capital City <clears throat> Muskies Inc. Muskie University is online only this year. You can go to their Facebook page to pre register and you can see some snippets of upcoming seminars. Uh, it starts on, well, in March, two Saturdays in March, and then the last one, April 3rd. And I'm doing a fly fishing seminar on that last date. I'm Dan Small here with Jeff Kelm. You get outside this weekend and join us again next week for Outdoors Radio.